Well, good morning again, church. Yes, it is. A couple of quick things before I get started. I, um, I consider myself uh, a young man, and I visited your young men's Sunday school class, and now I consider myself an even younger man. Uh, and so th- my, only, my only thing is is that sometimes my, my mind treats me like an old man, and if I don't tell you something when I'm thinking about it, I'll definitely forget. And so there was two things that I wanted to run by you guys before we start. Uh, first is, uh, in case in case you're a visitor here, uh, my name is Bobby Struther, and I'm the new pastor here at Kashai. This is my second week going. Uh, I think I ran some people off last week without without knowing it, but uh, they'll come back. Hopefully, they're just on vacation. But what I wanted to tell you is that the whole time that um, that I was talking with your pastor search committee, uh, they were an absolute joy to speak with and to to have dealings with. And so I wanted to tell you guys, thank you for picking a great group of people to represent you. I feel like they did a, a very honorable job. Uh, also, the house that we were moving into that we spent the night in last night didn't open up until a week after we were planning on moving. And uh, you guys very graciously allowed us to go back and get the rest of our things and, and move one time as opposed to moving two times. And so I wanted to tell you as a church body, thank you for being gracious and allowing us to have an ample amount of time to, to get our things here. That leads into my second one. My things are here, but they're on the back of a truck. And so if any of you are able-bodied, I would love to invite you to my house at 3 o'clock today. Uh, I live on Wayland Street over near Jimmy. And so if you wouldn't mind grabbing some lunch and maybe a quick nap and an ibuprofen and then headed over to my house at 3 o'clock, I would greatly appreciate your help uh, in unloading the moving truck. It shouldn't take us more than more than an hour. And so if, if you give me a solid hour, uh, I'll give you some cold drink at the end of it and we'll, uh, we'll have it good. Funny story. We were loading up things from my house, and uh, my dad gave me all of my grandmother's china. And when my dad gave me my grandmother's china, he packed it very neatly, packed it great, and it was everything was perfect. And we weren't going to use it soon because we thought we might be moving, so we took it immediately and we put it in the attic exactly like it was packed. Well, it just so happens that one of the boxes that he packed it in was a, a an old beer box, an old Bud Light box, a very stout cardboard box. And so we're cleaning everything out of my attic. And uh, one of my friends from the church we moved to, he says, hey, when you go down there to that new church, what are you going to tell them about this box? And uh, and I laughed and I said, you know what I'm going to tell them? I'm going to tell them that's what I had to give my old church to help me move. Uh, and so he said, he said, okay, okay. And so uh, that's not the cold drink I was referring to, but uh, you come over and we'll make sure you stay hydrated and, and help me get all my things off the truck. I would, I would be forever in your debt to uh, help me do that. Uh, but this week, so don't forget, 3 o'clock. I'll forget to remind you at the end, but if you don't mind, I would love it if you came. So let's, uh, if you'll turn over to Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to pray for us in a moment. And then we'll, we'll review quickly what we talked about last week. And then we'll cover the rest of the book of Matthew. Let me, let's go to the Lord in prayer again. Father, we as your people, we come before you now and we ask that you would speak through me. I pray that you would use me, your servant, to feed your people. God, I pray that they would be blessed as a result of what we share with them. And God, I pray that they would forever be changed to be more like you. God, I pray that we would grow in unity. I pray that we would grow in our faith. 
And God, I pray that we would be a people who do magnificent things for your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you stay in Matthew 16. I'm going to start back again in Matthew 3, but I'm going to go fast. Remember I told you last week that Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And so Matthew has a a fundamental understanding of the Old Testament. He knows exactly what the Jewish people were told originally. And Matthew understands how to relate to this Jewish audience that he's writing to. So what Matthew does is he sets out in his gospel to convince you of one thing. And what Matthew wants to convince you of is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that makes all the difference in the world. If Jesus Christ is not God's Son, then you and I are wasting our time right now. Paul will go on to say, if Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than any other man in the universe. And so Matthew starts out, and he talks about the baptism of Jesus. Jesus goes to John the Baptist. You know the story. John the Baptist says, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, well, let's, let's do this so that the scriptures can be fulfilled. And as Jesus baptizes, or as John baptizes Jesus, the heavens open, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Then Satan takes Jesus out into the wilderness to tempt him for 40 days. And three of Jesus' temptations, all three of them, deal with one thing. Remember I told you that Satan over and over and over again says to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, then do this. If you are the Son of God, then do that. Then Satan says, If you will worship me, I'll give you everything that you see. And because Jesus is the Son of God, he doesn't worship Satan. Because the Son of God doesn't worship Satan. Then you go over to Matthew 5 through 7. And you have the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus finishes up teaching. And at the end of it, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Then some of the men who heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount, they come to him and they say, Teacher, we'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, The foxes have holes and the birds have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the people leave. Because remember, we said, if Jesus is just a good teacher, then he's not worth following him where there's no bed. Then another one says, Master, I'll follow you wherever you go. First, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says, no, I'm not the kind of master that you follow on your own terms. You either follow me now or you don't follow me. You keep going through Matthew. And uh, Jesus has control over the water. He does all kinds of other miracles. John the Baptist has a, a smidgen of doubt as to who Jesus is. And he sends the messenger to Jesus and says, Are you the one or is, should we expect someone else? And then Jesus from Isaiah, he tells them, No, as a matter of fact, I am the one. And then he says, Blessed is he who doesn't fall away on account of me. And so Jesus understands that he's different than what they were expecting. Jesus doesn't march to the beat of the drum that everyone else marches to. Jesus does things his way, and he expects us to get in line with what he says as opposed to conform to what we want him to be. Following me? Matthew keeps going, 
And Jesus walks on the water, as I shared with the kids this morning. And I love that he did a Pete Rose right in the middle of the, uh, in the aisle. That was great. That will, that will be my kids once they get more comfortable. Trust me. And so there'll be, there'll be four of them running down there like that. So Jesus walks on the water. And at the end of Jesus walking on the water, the disciples are afraid. And when they get into the boat, this is what they say. Truly you are the son of God. And I hope you're keeping up with what we're, what we're saying. In your life, Jesus Christ has to be the son of God who is fully God. Because that makes all the difference in the world. He's not just a great guy. He's not just a savior. He's not just a master. He's not just any of those things. He is God's son. And this was so important that in Matthew chapter 16, where you are, it's so important that Jesus wanted the disciples to understand this too. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus says, or Matthew says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the son of man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And so on this fundamental statement that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus is going to build his church. And last week we said that if Jesus doesn't build the church, it's not worth building. There's a scripture that says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers work in vain. And so unless we are a people who are willing to unite around the common theme that Jesus Christ is the son of God and he is the Christ and we allow him to build his church, everything that we do as a group of people is in vain. It has to be Christ building his church or it's useless. And so what does Christ's church look like? That's some of the things that we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come. But right after this, right after Peter confesses exactly what Jesus wants him to know, Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain with Jesus, and they get to see Jesus transfigured. They see Jesus in all of his glory, and they see Moses and Elijah appear. And if you'll look, this isn't what the sermon is about, but if you'll look, Peter, James, and John are forever changed after they see Christ in his glory. That's what they become emphatic about. They don't care about anything else. They want to know more about the kingdom of heaven, and they want to know about how to be partakers of God's glory. So much so that after the transfiguration, uh, they have a conversation. This is Matthew 18. It says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus... This is Matthew 18, verse 1. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to read one more story. Over in chapter 19. So let's set the stage. Peter, James, and John, over the course of Jesus' ministry, they get to serve with him. 
They've seen him turn water into wine. They've seen him calm the storm. They've seen him bring back people from the dead. They've seen him do all kinds of miraculous things that you'll probably never see me do. And then they see Jesus in all of his glory. And they're mesmerized by it. And they want more of it. So much so that they tell their mom about it. And their mom says, hey, Jesus, grant me whatever I ask you. And she says, what, and Jesus says, what do you ask? And she says, let my babies, when they get into heaven, sit one on your right and one on your left when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, lady, you don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And at that, she, she kind of says, I don't know. And then Jesus tells her, those seats are appointed for certain people. And it's not for you to know right now. But they want to be right beside Jesus when Jesus is in his glory. And so they have this conversation and they say, okay, Jesus, who's the greatest in your kingdom? If you're as great as you say you are, and you're as great as we've seen you to be, who's the greatest in the kingdom? And they've got to be looking around at themselves at the 12, and they say, okay, um, it's probably not the nine who stayed at the bottom of the mountain. It's probably going to be one of us three, Peter, James, or John. It's probably one of us because we're the closest, and Jesus took us up on the mountain with him. And so they ask him, they say, Jesus, who's the greatest? Sometimes I'll sit around the dinner table with my family and I'll tell my brother, you know, I'm the favorite, right? And he hates it. And he says, he says, you may be the favorite, but I'm the best. And I said, well, do you know, you know, when you have a pack of hunting dogs, which dog rides in the front with you? Your favorite one. The best, it doesn't matter if you're the best dog or not. The favorite dog gets the treat. Doesn't matter which one's the best. It's the favorite that all is all that matters. And so the disciples say, Hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? And Jesus brings up a child. And he says, this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And they've got to be thinking, the child? We're the ones that went and gathered the five loaves and the fish. We're the ones that have done all these other things. And they still don't get it. And then this happens. Chapter 19, verse 13. Then... Little children were brought to Jesus for him to place their hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. And so they just finished asking, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, the children. And then a bunch of kids come to Jesus. And the disciples are like, go away. Jesus doesn't have time for you. And Jesus says, no, remember I told you, the kingdom of heaven belongs to these children. And then the next story. I told you, Matthew makes perfect sense if you follow it. Here's the next story. Look who comes to Jesus next. They run off the kids who Jesus said the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And look who comes now. The rich young ruler. Now a man came up to Jesus, this is chapter 19, verse 16. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20, all these I have kept, the young man said, what do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, 
Go, sell your possessions and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so just think for a minute like you're a CEO or you're a manager of a company. And you want to grow the company. And you look out into the world and you say, who do I want to bring into my company? It wouldn't be the kids. It wouldn't be the kids at all because kids don't have a lot to offer. Kids are are pretty needy. They need mom. They need dad. They need instruction. If you wanted to grow something and you could pick between a group of, of children or a rich young ruler... If you were to think worldly, you would say, man, let's lead the rich guy to Christ. God could do incredible things if that guy with all the money would get saved. Maybe there's a great band in town. Man, what if those band members got saved and then they started a band at church? You know how many people they could reach? And it's easy for us to think and we take people with their natural abilities and hope that God will do great things with them. And so we pray that, that these big name people would get saved so that God could do great things with them. And God says, no, that's not the way my kingdom works. The children are who I want. I want the least of these. And then Jesus says, through them, through the least of these, I'll make myself look good. You see, Jesus doesn't need the things that we bring. Jesus doesn't need our money. Jesus doesn't need our talents, and Jesus doesn't need our resources. Jesus needs one thing from us, obedience. Now, you keep going through Matthew, and there's a lot of bizarre things that Jesus says. And do you know the most bizarre thing that happens in the book of Matthew to Jesus? Jesus gets to the disciples, and he takes this group of, of people who... We're just an oddball group of people, and he grows them, and he grows them, and he grows them, and he grows them. And then you get to this, this big point, and Jesus says, who am I? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. And then do you know what Jesus does? Jesus, the Christ, the son of the living God, do you know what he does? He dies. You get to the end of the book of Matthew, and God dies. Have you ever thought about that? That doesn't seem to fit. Nobody saw that coming. But God dies on the cross for your sin and for my sin. He dies on an instrument of torture. And he does it so that you can be forgiven of your sin. God himself on the cross. At the end of the book of Matthew, now they've killed him. And that doesn't seem to be incredibly profound. But we learn later that Jesus dies to take our sin. And then Jesus doesn't stay dead because he said, no man takes my life, but I lay it down. And if I lay down my life, then I can pick it back up. That's when you're like, yeah, Jesus is a stud. Because he says, no, you didn't take my life. I laid it down. And if I lay it down, I can pick it back up. 
I like Jesus because he's a man's man. He doesn't fool around. You can't kill him. He's just, he's bulletproof. So Jesus, God, raises from the dead. And then he says, but don't go anywhere yet. Remember in the upper room? He tells his disciples, don't go anywhere. Wait. And so Jesus is dead for 40 days and the people wait. And then the Holy Spirit comes and now the people are turned loose to go. Because he says, I don't want you to go in your own power. I want you to go in my power. And so the things of God don't always make a lot of sense to us when we think business-like. I like to listen to a lot of uh, talk radio. I'm not a, a, sometimes the radio, all the music starts to sound the same after a while. It's just the same song over and over and over again. And so I'll listen to talk radio uh, and hopefully they're not playing the same thing over and over and over again. And I'll listen to conservative people. Then I'll listen to, to liberal people. And it, it doesn't, I'll just listen to just to see what have, people are having to say. But if I listen to too much talk radio, sometimes I'll begin to think like a conservative and not a Christian. And there's a difference. Because the conservative way is not always the godly way. And vice versa. God's ways are different. God uses the simple things in this world to profound the wise. And so now I want to take you. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to tell you this story. Second Kings chapter 5 is where we're going. I'm going to tell you a, what I think is going to be a relatively brief story. But it's going to drive this point home. There's a guy named Naaman. In the Old Testament. Uh, Naaman is like a modern day General Schwarzkopf. Naaman happens to be the head of the Syrian army. You guys are familiar with Syria, right? Syria is north of Israel. And the Syrians will ultimately come in and they'll wipe out Israel. Uh, or actually, Assyria. This is when it gets confusing. Assyria will wipe out Syria. And then Assyria will come down and wipe out Israel. And so here's this guy named Naaman. And he's the leader of the, of the army of Syria, and these guys are hardcore. Thank, uh, thank U.S. Army Desert Storm, right? They're going to come in, and they're going to clean house. Uh, so here's this guy, Naaman. He's got a wife, and he has a servant girl. This servant girl was an Israelite girl who was stolen. You think human trafficking is a, is a new problem. Human trafficking goes back a long time. So this band of Syrians, they come into Israel, they kidnap this girl, you don't ever get to know her name, and then they take her back to Syria and they sell her on the auction block. So here's this sweet little Israelite girl, and Naaman, the head of the Syrian army, buys this girl, and it's his wife's servant. Now Naaman has a problem. Naaman has what we call leprosy. Leprosy is certain death. Leprosy starts out in your extremities, it works its way inward, and it's guaranteed to kill you. And if you're a leper, you're, you're kind of banished from society. And so Naaman is the top-notch general in Syria, and he has leprosy. Now, if you're the king of Syria, and you have a top-notch general, you'll do whatever it takes to keep him alive and keep him going, right? Because if you don't have your army, you don't have anybody. So, Naaman gets leprosy, and the servant girl... Tells the wife, hey, if he'll go to Israel, there's a prophet in Israel that can heal him. Now remember, Syrian, Syria is a pagan country. They don't believe, they're not followers of God, nothing. And so Naaman's wife goes to Naaman and says, Naaman, my servant girl says that there's a God in Israel. And if you'll go to him, he makes it his business to heal and restore people. And so Naaman says, okay. And he goes to the king of Syria 
And the king of Syria says, by all means, Naaman, go. Go to Israel and get healed. Now, if you're the king of Syria, you'd tell him the same thing. Go be healed. So he says, but don't just go and be healed. Take people with you. Take a caravan of people with you. Take, take treasure with you to give them so that they'll heal you. If you had a top-notch general who was going to make you a world power, you'd give him everything you had too so that he could keep doing his thing. So Naaman goes to Israel. And he goes to the king. And he says to the king, uh, I have leprosy. I want your God to heal me. And the king it just comes unraveled. He says, am I God? Do I give life and take away life? And he doesn't know what to do. And so there's a prophet by the name of Elisha in the town. And Elisha hears that the king has ripped his clothes. And the king is, is just doesn't know what to do. Doesn't know how to, how to take care of this ruler of Syria. And so Elisha sends him a letter. And he says, send the man to me. So Elisha's in his house. Probably watching some Sunday football. Kicked back in his lazy boy. This is the picture I get. Let's say that, that Israel, the town where he is, is much like Windsor. And so outside of town, he's met with the king. And I picture him driving down, driving down 13 with his convoy. It says that he doesn't just go by himself, but he takes horses and he takes chariots and he takes this array of people and he takes treasure with him. And so I imagine him coming down 13 and passing the peanut store. And Jack gets on the phone and says, I don't know what's going on, but somebody is here and they mean business. Because horses and chariots, think armored cars, think secret service type, type stuff coming in. There's a, there's 20 black Escalades coming down 17 and they're all armored and have machine guns and we don't know what's going on. And so the commander of the army comes to Elisha's door and Elisha's kicked back in his lazy boy. And you hear a knock on the door and it's the commander of the Syrian army. And what does Elisha do? He doesn't move. He doesn't move at all. He tells his servant, go get the door. So the servant goes to the door and he opens the door. Now, this is a servant. And the commander of the Syrian army is standing at the door. And Elisha doesn't budge. He tells him, I've got leprosy. I want your God to heal me. And the servant says, my buddy Elisha said, go dunk in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. And it says that when Naaman heard that, he went away angry. And so I picture Naaman slamming the door. And he says, let's go. And they drive to the gas station and they grab something to drink. And he's standing outside the car, fuming. You mean to tell me I'm the general and he won't heal me? He tells me to dunk in the river seven times? There's better rivers than the... If you've ever been to the Jordan River, it's a muddy mess. It's disgusting. Uh, we, we baptized people in the Jordan River when we went to Israel. And it was really... It was not pleasant. Like, it was cool to be baptized in the Jordan River. But there was nothing glorious about it. It's a muddy mess. And I don't know what was biting us the whole time we were baptizing people. I don't even want to know. But there was, there was alive stuff all around us while we were in there. But we did it just to say we did it. And so he's standing outside the gas station, outside of his car, and he's mad. The guy won't heal me. He says, I expected him to wave his hand over my arm and be healed. And some of his buddies come up to him, some of his, his entourage. And they say, Naaman, if the prophet would have told you to do something ridiculously difficult, you would have done it. He says, if the prophet would have told you to go capture 200 cities... You would have got your army and you would have conquered 200 cities and you would have been healed. 
If he would have told you to help build 10 Habitat for Humanity houses, you would have, you would have gotten your tools and you would have built them. If it was 20 wheelchair ramps, you would have gone out and you would have built them. And he says, but the prophet told you to do something ridiculously easy. Why don't you just give it a shot? And Naaman says, okay, maybe you're right. And so I don't know where they were in relation, but maybe he says, hey, guys, the Jordan's on the way home anyways. Why not we just stop by and go for a swim? I don't know how it works. But if you're the general of the army, you have to humble yourself and do what God tells you to do. And so Naaman goes into the Jordan and he dunks seven times. And on the seventh time, when he comes up, it says that his skin is like that of a baby. We would say soft as a baby's bottom. That's not real cool for a general. But if you had leprosy and then you had skin like a baby, it's not a bad deal. So he gets, he gets healed. He does what God wants him to do. He humbles himself, does what God tells him to do. And then he goes back to the prophet. And it says that when he came to Israel, that he got sent with 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold. I did the math this morning. Gold and silver prices are down, so my numbers are a little less than they should be. $300,000 worth of silver he's got behind a horse. $3.1 million worth of gold. 150 pounds of gold. Go to the hardware store. Buy yourself two 80-pound bags of quickcrete. And plop them down on your front porch. And that's how much gold he had. And he comes to the prophet. And he says, surely there is a God that lives in Israel. And he's the only God that there is. Take all of this treasure from me. And so the general of the Syrian army comes back to Elisha's house with $3.5 million worth of precious metal. And for some reason, when you read the story, he also brought 10 changes of clothes. They must have been Versace clothes or something, something they wear in Miami. I don't know why you bring $3.5 million worth of clothes or $3.5 million worth of gold and then 10 pairs of clothes. If I left you a gift like that, I would let you buy your own clothes with the money that I left you. But for some reason, he does it. Well, anyways, the prophet Elijah says, no, I'm not taking the money. That's not the system that God operates on. It's not about how great you are. It's not about what you have to offer. It's about submitting yourself to God, allowing his grace to give you things and allowing him to work through you. That's how you build God's kingdom. You don't buy it. You don't trick it. You don't use eloquent words to build it. We as a people, we humble ourselves and we pray. And in mere obedience to God's command, he works through us and he builds his church the way that he wants it. And so one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to jump into the book of Ephesians coming up pretty soon. And Ephesians will blow you away because God tells you simple thing after simple thing after simple thing. And I'm not going to lie to you. Once you add about 10, 12 simple things up, they become rather difficult. But much like Peter, he just expects you to try one at a time, put one foot in front of the other, and then we build together. So as we come to our time of invitation, while, uh, while we're singing our song of invitation, I want you to give some thought to how you plan on building God's kingdom. Have you ever thought that it's the little things that you do that become great things? 
Maybe God's asking you to do something simple, like dunk in the Jordan seven times. And you think, ah, that's, that's nothing. Well, if you don't do the little things that God's calling you to do, you'll never amount to great things that God wants to do through you. Very rarely in the Christian walk do you set out to accomplish a great task. Normally, you look back and you say, wow, that was great. But when you're in the middle of it, it seems like one simple thing after the other. And God wants from you humbleness and obedience. He wants you to have the heart of a child. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we acknowledge that your ways are different than ours. God, we acknowledge that the church belongs to you. And that you are the builder and the architect. God, I pray that we would never come up with some sort of plan that we think is better than anything you've come up with already. But God, help us as a people to be humble. Help us as a people to to cling to your word and to obey it. Lord, help us to have joy in the midst of suffering. And God, I pray that you would give us a burning passion for both the, the body of Christ and the world outside that we want to bring into the body of Christ. God, take us, make us what you want us to be. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, church, thank you for coming again. We enjoyed having you here. Don't forget, Advil, 3 o'clock. A little bit of truck unloading, a little moving boxes. I pray that you guys have a great week. I pray that the Lord blesses you beyond measure, and I pray that you use those blessings to serve him. Let me go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll be dismissed. God, you are a treasure unlike no other. I pray that as we go throughout this week, that our lives would reflect your greatness. And I pray that people would long to know about the hope that we have in you. So God, help us to be a zealous people for your name. Help us to be busy about the work that you would have us busy about. And Lord, we pray that you would use us in a mighty way. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.